Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, maybe, maybe we'll talk, uh, maybe we'll call today's talk uh, the uh, never-ending conversation. And, and the, the idea being that there's this, this, this amazing partnership. We talk about the, we talk about the partnership between um, the Rabboni Shalom, the master of the universe, and, and ourselves a lot, but, but maybe we can just explore um, a little bit what that means uh, today, uh, go into a little bit more depth. So, so you know, just, just to introduce the idea, uh, whenever, whenever I speak to a group, um, especially to a new group, I, I almost always uh, end up saying the, the, this following thought. I, just for me, it's so central, which is um, I, I tell them, and, and I, I really believe this with all my heart, that, uh, that everybody has the same question, whether they're aware of it or not, whether they can articulate or not, but, it, but everyone has it, which is that if there's a God, why is the world so messed up? Everybody is wondering this, right? So, so my answer, the, the Torah's answer, actually, is that the, the world isn't finished yet. That, that's the answer. Um, I think a, a lot of people uh, imagine that, that the world was created uh, perfect, and then we messed it up, and we're trying to get it back, back to that place again. This is what most people think. But as I heard Reb Shlomo say so brilliantly one time, he said, if the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? Right? It's, it's a, it, it tells you that from the very outset of creation, we had something to do. We had something to do. Um, we had to harness that uncontrolled energy. That's, a, that's why... The gematria for nachash, which means snake, which is the word that's used for the snake in the Garden of Eden, is amazingly the same gematria as the word Mashiach. Wow. So here you, have, here you have this correlation between harnessing that energy and then bringing order and completion to the world. And that's, that's what our job is. That is... That, that is one perspective of understanding this partnership between us and God. We're created as unfinished beings who need work. Again, a lot of people think that, you know, um, you know I'm, I'm born in this very natural, beautiful state, and, and I have to follow all of my natural inclinations and urges, and that's... that's that's really the beauty of me. And then society comes in and tells me what I can do and what I can't do. You know? So, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. And then I get ruined, right? And now I'm neurotic, right? So, that, that's sometimes, as, as again, Rip Shlomo put it so beautifully, some people want to come up to you and clip your wings. Right? That, that happens. That does happen. That's real. However... Just on a deeper level, the idea that, that anyone who's trying to shape me, or the idea that I'm born in essential perfection, and I just have to be gently guided and encouraged to be more me, it, that, that's, also, that, that's, that, that's a problematic type of thought. And that's, it, that's, that's sort of a snapshot of where Western society is today. Very much in that camp. Very much in that camp. The Torah is telling you that you, you are born with flaws, with flaws, with things that you need to work on, with very positive attributes, which you can build on, and with inclinations, which need refining and working on. And, and in, in other words, like I, I gave this bit of imagery um, a few weeks ago, but I kind of like it, which is that, um, you know, when you buy something from I I Ikea, right, it comes in like a big box, and you have to you have to assemble it. And so we, we sort of are born not as finished pieces, but as things that have to be constructed. We have to be constructed. That's the, that, that, is the, that is the idea. Um, and, and that's by design, and that's, that's part of the partnership. So, so you, and now you have this really magnificent parallel between the idea that each person is a microcosm of the whole world 
and that as you bring yourself closer to perfection, you're bringing the world itself closer to perfection as well. So there are like cosmic consequences to us being able to elevate ourselves. As we're all elevating ourselves, the world itself is falling into place. Um, so these are some different ideas of, of this, this partnership that, that, uh, that exists between us and God. You know, um, one of the things that is, one of the early uh, verses in, in, in Bracius, in, in Genesis, is God says, and this is sort of mysterious in its own way, because, because you know, nothing's really been created yet. God says, let us make man. So, who's the us? Right? Like, so, one, one answer is that God's talking to the angels. Okay, but, but Rabbi Tversky says something so beautiful that, that God is actually talking to man. That let us make man is that there is this partnership between us and God, between finishing, finishing ourselves. You know? And, and that's... that's that's, that's interesting. Why, do we, why are we so mad at Asaph? We know Asaph is Yaakov Avinu's twin and, and can stand for the Yetzirah and all sorts of things. Why? The negative inclination. Why are we so mad at Asaph? So Asaph, we're told, was born fully hairy. <laughs> you know, he was like a, he was a baby, but he was, like a, he was born like a hairy man, which is odd, you know? And the name, that's how he got his name, by the way. Asav comes from the word asui, which means made, meaning complete. And spiritually speaking, the reason why we're, so to speak, mad at Asav is that he imagines himself from the time of birth to be a finished product. That, that's antithetical. That very much goes against the Torah ideal, which is that we're forever works in progress. Right? If you think you've finished, that's the greatest proof that you haven't finished. Right? We're forever works in progress, but that's the good news. See, we don't, we're not depressed by that. <laughs> if you come up to someone and say, the good news is you're never going to be done. It's like, what? <laughs> no, that is the good news. Because you know something? Once you're done, what do you do? I remember, you know, there were, when, I, when I was growing up, I watched a lot of television. And, and there were certain plots that were on every single TV show. One, one plot, which was just, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but it was just, it was so dumb, and I hated it on every single show, was the people who are living in the house get into a fight, and they draw a line down the middle of the living room. <laughs> that was on every single show. It's crazy, you know? Um, another plot that I saw in a lot of shows was the person who retires and then they're looking forward their whole life to retirement and then they retire and then, then they're miserable. <laughs> that was on a lot of shows too. You know, because the idea that, what, my work's done now? Like, it goes against the soul. The soul wants to know that it's never done. Because the soul is a little piece of God it's a little piece of the inf infinite. And how can you tell the infinite that it's finite? Because the infinite can't be finished. So if you're telling your soul that it's finite, the soul rebels against that concept. It, it makes the soul miserable that I'm done. How could I be done? So, so this idea that God, complete, God finished the world, right? Or rather, when God created the world, it wasn't finished. And you see this again in another area. We talked about it a little bit last week. Imagine what the divine intelligence, the infinite intelligence that it would take to actually create a human being. Right? Like, imagine you have a laboratory, and you're like, okay, what's today's project? We're going to make a person. Right? Like, how do you, you got to, Make a brain, and you got to make a liver, and you got to make kidneys, and you got to wire all the veins together so the blood is flowing and getting to all the flesh and the bone. Like, how are you going to do it? You can't do it. It's never been done. It's never been done because you can't do it. Okay? So God did it. God did it. 
And when he finished creating the human male, he left an extra flap of skin on the man and said, okay, you now cut that piece of skin off, right? That's, the, that's a bris, that's a circumcision. Now let me ask you this. Did God, God did the impossible. Do you think that he couldn't create a, a human being without that little extra flap of skin? But all of a sudden it's like, hey, you know what? I got to make a call. You guys finish off. There's a little extra skin over there. Just finish it off. I'll be over here. I'll get right back to you. <laughs> like, cut to thousands of years later, right? So what is God doing creating the impossible, a human being, and yet leaving a little piece for us to do? Well, that's exactly the point. The point is, it is a partnership. That's exactly the point. And here, again, you see the idea again that God does essentially 99.99999% of the work and then asks us to just finish it off. That's by design. That's on purpose. Okay. And, you know, in the, in the Gomorrah, they give an example. Rabbi Akiva says to, um, to you know, this is... It's an amazing conversation, amazing moment in, in the Talmud. Uh, a Roman, and you, you see the, you know, someone told me, I, I haven't read the books of, uh, what is it, Rand? What is it? Who wrote the Ayan? Ayan? I was wondering, is it, is it actually Ayan? Ayan? You know, Ayan means nothing in Hebrew. You know what I mean? There in her own name has this, like, thorough condemnation, you know? Anyway, what is it? Objectivism? I, I, I don't know anything that I'm talking about. Just someone told me that she's against Sadaka. She's against charity. And I thought, anyone who's against charity, I, I don't even have to open the front page of the book. You know what I'm saying? I can already like, put it aside. So, 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 but, the, but this is not new. The, the, the Romans already are, are coming up to Rabbi Akiva and saying, hey, listen, you're so religious. You think everything is in God's hands. If God made that person poor, who are you to give him food or money? <laughs> Can you imagine? This level of cruelty, which is, which is sort of like contorted into a religious thought, right? It's, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. So Rabbi Akiva says, says back to him, right? Which is better? And he holds up a, a loaf of bread in one hand and stalks of wheat in another hand. And he says, which one is, 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 the, is superior? So, so, so the, the person, the Roman points to the loaf of bread. Right? And so, so Rabbi Akiva explains to him, look, here you see that, that, that man made this bread. God made the wheat. And yet everyone agrees that the loaf of bread is superior to the wheat. Because here, again, you see this element of partnership that's supposed to be done. God puts the poor person there in order for us to help the person. Right? So this is, this is what I'm talking about, this ongoing conversation, this never-ending conversation between us and God. And again, another, another just example of this. Just one of my favorite, these are all kind of like landmark thoughts, in, in, in my opinion. Where uh, Avraham Avinu has just had his circumcision, right? And so it's very thematically appropriate to what we're discussing. And remember, he did it when he was 99, and he did it himself, right? And now it's the third day, and Rashi's telling us this is the, the most painful day of recovery. And he's sitting at the opening of his tent, and God made it... The hottest day, now we're talking about the Middle East in the desert, the hottest day intentionally so that guests wouldn't come because Hashem wanted Avraham to just be able to rest and, and not to be running around helping guests, which was his, his MO. He, that was, he lived to give hospitality and you know, teach people the oneness of God through that, through that, through that chesed, through those acts of kindness. And... Um, and so, so what happens? God sees that God visits him. And by the way, this is where we learn the mitzvah of visiting the sick. 
because God visits Abraham. And while God is visiting Abraham, Abraham sees three strangers, and Abraham jumps up and runs to help them. Now, by the way, by the way, the reason why God sent those angels was because he saw that Abraham was more miserable just sitting there <laughs> than if he were able to be busy. So that in itself was a, a, an act of chesed. Just because it, it, it was just, you know, you got you to gotta love how much God loved Abraham. Because the initial plan was let him rest. And not that God changed his mind, but when Abraham rose to the next level, he rose to the opportunity of even in that state being able to have this opportunity to do this mitzvah, if you follow. But anyway, um, what's the point? Everyone jumps all over this, this moment and says, how could Abraham have the chutzpah to interrupt God while God is talking to him in order to run to these strangers? Right? They were angels, but Abraham didn't know that. And the answer that I heard from Rabbi Grumman years ago, and it just just got carved into my heart, this, this idea was, uh, Rabbi Grumman said this over, but I, I think it was from someone else. Um, he said that, God forbid you should think that Abraham was interrupting God. God was continuing the conversation with God and deepening the conversation with God by applying this act of kindness in this realm. Right? So again, here you see this idea of this ongoing conversation. And by the way, everything that we do in our own lives, every person that we talk to, wherever we go, this is not whatever objects even that we interact with in the, in the physical, in the, in the sentient realm, in the non-sentient realm, whether we're, we're like, for instance, what's the, what's the halacha by Hanukkah? is that it's optimal, if you can, to light your menorah with oil as opposed to a wax candle. Okay, they're both, you fulfill the mitzvah both ways, but because the miracle of Hanukkah was done over, under, over oil, it's better to use oil if you can. So the, I heard from my friend, the, there's a halakha question, what if you pick up a wax candle and then all of a sudden you remember you've got oil in the house? What do you do? And the, I love this answer. The answer is you continue to light with the wax candle because otherwise you're going to insult it. <laughs> now can you imagine that Torah has such regard for inanimate objects? What a level, that's a, that's a very mind-expanding perspective in terms of the level of respect that we have because what does it mean? It means that whatever we're interacting with, whether it's something that's a, a, a breathing being or whether it's inanimate, all these things have been put before us by God, right? Who's customizing every single aspect of our life and that this is part of the conversation between us and God, whether it's a person or whether it's a piece of wax. Okay, so... So, so let's, let, let, let's go further, because you, I, want to express, I want to express this idea in, a, in another paradigm, okay? We're going to go deeper now, okay? Which is you have two elements to the Torah. You have the, what we call the Torah Shebek Tzav and the Torah Shabal Peh. So the Torah Shebek Tzav would be the written Torah. Okay, that would be like, you know, when you hold up a Torah scroll, that's Torah Shebek Tzav, that's, that's the written Torah. But then you have the Torah Shabal Peh, also known as the Talmud, okay? And the Talmud and Torah, really, Torah Shabal Peh, which would mean, sometimes it's translated as the oral law, that's massive because that really includes every commentary that's ever been made on the, on the Torah. Formally speaking, we'll say it's the Talmud, but really, it would include all halacha and all chassidus, all kabbalah, all of that would fall under the category of Torah Shabal Peh. All right? That is sort of like a human being's interface with the divine. All right? And, and the, way, um, the way I heard it put one time, I, I don't remember who said it exactly, is, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because 
if I, if I were to say to you which one is more understandable, which one is clearer, I probably would say the written Torah, because if you start to get into like the Mishnah and the and the, and the Talmud and all of the back and forths of the halacha about you know contracts and all sorts of things like that, it's it's it, it gets very very confusing, you know. And and most of the people, when you think of like what were when we say that really. You know, one of the things that I, I, I like to point out to people is that, you know, a lot of people say, well, people think Jews are so smart, you know, Marx and, and Freud and, and Einstein, they were all Jewish, they're all so smart. But you know something, we had Max and Fro- Marx and Freud and Einstein in every single generation for thousands of years. It's, it's just that they were concentrating on the Torah, right? That's, that's what they were doing. And so we've got, we've got thousands of years of geniuses building on the work of other geniuses. This is the amazing thing about Torah. Now, now just to underscore that point, we'll get back to the, the other point in a second, but just to, so you understand why that's such a big deal. Most, most fields of study in the world shift paradigms at some point during their history. And when they shift paradigms, all of the work leading up to that is thrown in the garbage. Okay, there are very few examples where you can open up, like Torah being one of them, where you can, like, like, like if you open up a, a, a page of Talmud, it's like a time machine. It's like the most beautiful thing in the world because you have in the middle of the page the Mishnah, and the Mishnah is going all the way back to Mount Sinai. That's God himself explaining the, the written word. Okay? Then you have a fleshed out explanation that's going back about, you know, 1,500, 2,000 years ago. A whole conversation. Then you have everyone along the sides having a conversation with themselves from different periods of time. From 1,000 years ago, from several hundred years ago, more recently... And they're all arguing with each other and they're all having one conversation about one topic that's been lasting for thousands of years and then you yourself are sitting over it trying to figure out what everyone else is saying and you're part of that conversation. But it's one conversation. It's that, I think if I'm pronouncing this right, um, in the Middle Ages, they had this concept of hermunculi, I believe they were called which were like, where did babies come from? Well, in, in the man's seed, there were little tiny men, grown men. <laughs> and so they, and I mean, the, it's laughable, but you have to understand, they were brilliant people. They were brilliant people coming up with these ideas. It's just the paradigm shifted, and so that work gets thrown out. Alchemists. Alchemists were brilliant, brilliant scientists but they were working from some premises that, that, that have been rejected by science. But it doesn't mean that they were dumb. They were brilliant. But their work gets thrown out. The Torah work never gets thrown out. That's, that, that's, that's what I'm telling you. That, that, that is the, the majesty and the magnificence of opening up Torah books because it's one long conversation back to Mount Sinai and back really to the beginning of time or before the beginning of time, actually. Because it's authored by God, who created time, and created this world, and created history. Okay. So, so the, the idea is, the answer is, let me, is that the, the, written, the written word, the Torah Shebek the written word, is actually far more complex is actually far more complex. Because here we are in this day and age and we're still unpacking what it says. And as I've shared with you many, many times, the, the Torah, the written Torah, is the infinite compressed into the finite. Okay, we're still forever unpacking it. Okay, so here's another way of understanding it. Imagine a, a lecturer is, is giving a lecture, right? And it's sort of like um, the, 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 the 
lecture itself, you know, just fills a small amount of space, but then you take copious notes and you're, you know, you're unpacking it, unpacking it, unpacking it, unpacking it, right? All the term papers that are forever written on that, that lecture. So that's, that's another way of visualizing why the Talmud is so much bigger than, than, than the Chumash, the five books. But here's the point. The point is, is that we are the Torah Shabal Peh. And here's another amazing example where you see this partnership between us and God. Right? God gives us this foundation and then we are like fleshing out his word. But it's Torah. It's still Torah. So God allows this, this, this dynamic energy called Torah to flow through us. Right? But, but we have to be careful with it because there are certain parameters and guidelines and you can't just call whatever you make up Torah. Right? It's got to go through this process, right? And then, when it comes out of that process, if it makes it through that process, then you yourself are making Torah. Which is amazing that, that God makes Torah and, and we can make Torah. And the Torah that we're making is part of the completion of the whole world. Okay. Now listen to this. This is, this is, this is getting deeper now. There's certain, there's certain questions. It says, you can look it up. I was hoping to have it in front of me right now. So I can't go into as much detail as I would have liked, but, but you can look it up. It's in Gomorrah Shabbos, page 31a, okay? And um, um, what, what, it, what it says there is that after 120, um, there are certain questions that were going to be asked by the heavenly court. And like one of them is, did you... Did you do business faithfully? Right? Were you, were you, were you honest with business? That's, that, that's, that's a big question. Um, and I think maybe why is that the first question that's lift, listed? Because this is just one thought that I have. It may be because when you're in your business office, that's the moment where you think you're most on your own. <laughs> so I think the first question that's being asked in heaven is, when you were most on your own, were you aware that you were in front of God? <laughs> Let's start in the, in, the, in, the, in the business office, right? On that deal that you were making, right? Interesting, right? Anyway, did you, here's another question. Did you, did you try to make a family? So most people understand that as, did you have kids, right? Or did you at least try to have kids? But I saw a commentary, actually, in the, the art scroll, uh, Talmud that I thought was very beautiful, which was a completely different explanation of that, of that question. Did you try to make shaduchim? Did you try to get people married so that they could have kids? Isn't that interesting? Like, so that, that is like, that would be an answer of, did you, did, you try to, did you try to have a family or make a family, meaning in general, just make kids in general, right? Get couples together. So that's that, that, that's, 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 that, that was new to me, that, that, that answer. Um, did you await the coming of Mashiach? And I think that that's a very relevant question, especially for us today. Because Tisha B'Av, the 9th of Av, is, is going to be coming this Shabbos. We'll um, observe it. Hopefully it will be a complete celebration on, on Sunday, right? That's when the fast day will start, Saturday night, Sunday, if it happens at all. And so this week is a real question of where you can await. This is right now. You can really earn some cash money right now, like awaiting Mashiach. Like, like, like anyone who thinks that it's a foregone conclusion that it would have been here if it's coming already, I, that person gets, I don't know. I, I, I used to hear this phrase at, at, at Harvard sometimes, a D-mena. <laughs> so that would be the big D-minus. So like, you don't want a D-mena on your report card. Like, like ah, it would have already happened. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like God, the salvation can come in, in the blink of an eye. 
right? It can come at any moment. Now, we talked about this a bit this morning, but I want to make this point. I think this is an important point. Considering that one of our pieces of life wor- life's work is to await the coming of Mashiach, I just want to give just a little bit of advice of how to do that in a way that you won't get burnt out or where it will actually damage your emunah. Because here's how someone who's very, very sincere could go about it. And I've certainly fallen into this category at some point in my life, which is like, it's today! <laughs> and then it didn't come. Today! You know, and then again it didn't come. It was everything, all your... Every, Today! And then it did. You know, you can only do that for so long until you start to get burnt out. And then where you then start to ask yourself questions like, well, is it ever going to come? Right? So let me give you a way that's sustainable. Okay? Where with every fiber of your being, you know that Hashem, but I'm being very serious right now, you know that Hashem, with every fiber of your being, can bring it to that. You hear that little adjust? It can happen today. Not, it's going to happen today. Uh, it didn't happen. It didn't. No, no, no. It can happen today. Because God can do absolutely anything. And nothing is hard for God. You know, just on that subject, before we go further, because I, I had, this is something that, just a, you know, in the Amuna lab, right? Um, I... I, I, dealt, I was dealing with, which was that I had a hard thing that happened this week. It was, you know, it was, it was hard. I was disappointed. I was kind of hoping for something better and then didn't happen. And then I didn't feel so good. And I got into my car and my, uh, my, my phone is hooked up to my car um, speaker system. And like out of nowhere, uh, this song, Nachamu, by Rabbi Shlomo Katz, starts playing. And it's never played randomly, quote-unquote, it's on the random setting, I guess. It's never played before, ever. And Nachamu means that you should be comforted. And usually that is the thing that we, we do after Tisha B'Av. Like, okay, Tisha B'Av's over, the Shabbos after Tisha B'Av, it's called Shabbos Nachamu, and it's the Shabbos of comfort, and it's sort of like God says, okay, now things are going to get better. Don't worry. It's, it's going to get better. Um, and and I, here it is, and it's during the nine days, right? And all of a sudden, just, just out of nowhere, Nachamu, and it's a fantastic tune. You know, I was trying to think about the difference. If you, if you know that song, it's incredibly upbeat. And then, of course, Reb Shlomo Karlbach has a, a very classic version of Nachamu also, which has this sort of like sweet, comforting... But there's a twinge of melancholy to it also. And it's sort of like the difference between, imagine you're like very, very sad, like you're, you're in a bad place, and someone just sort of like holds your hand and strokes your cheek. That's, that's Reb Shlomo Karlbach's nigget, right? Like he's with you, and you feel, okay, God is, God's here, God's here, it's going to get better. And Shlomo Katz's is, you're in that terrible place, and someone just grabs you by the hand and pulls you into a party. <laughs> and then you're like, ah, okay, you know, like, what am I sad for, you know? So, anyway, but here's the point. Um, the point is that I was sitting in my car and I had just experienced this disappointing thing. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Nachamu, the party version, right, of Nachamu is playing. And I'm thinking, how how could this be? Like, like here we are during the nine days. This is the, the words of comfort at this period. It's never played spontaneously before. It's playing right now when I really need it. This has to be from God. And yet, I wasn't feeling it was from God. That's the point. That's, 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 that's the reason why I'm telling you this. And I thought to myself, I said... Do you believe I'm having a conversation with myself? Because I'm wondering why this is not cheering me up more. Why I'm not having this like, oh, I love you too, God moment, right? <laughs> like, why, why am I not feeling it, right? And I, I told you this, uh, this, this old joke. It's, a, it's actually, a, in my opinion, a very, very profound teaching before. But let me just reference it now. 
It's funny because it involves a person in a car, and I was in a car at the time. So the joke goes like this, which is a person's driving, and he's like driving in, in New York City, and you know parking is absolutely impossible, and he's got a very big business meeting, and he's got a park, and it's super tense, and he's like promising God all sorts of things, and it's like, God, if you give me a parking space, I'm going to start keeping Shabbos. God, please, I'll start, I'll start keeping kosher. And then a space opens up right in front of the building. Never mind, God, I just found a spot. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so the question is, <laughs> what went wrong? What went wrong? Right? Like, if we want to, okay, let's, okay, joke aside, let's analyze that, because that is a, the reason why we're laughing is because that is, we all identify with it, that is a snapshot of the soul, what, what happened, okay? So I want to suggest the following, and I'm sure you can give many explanations to this, but here's mine, which is that you can't say that the guy is not religious, because he's talking to God, <laughs> And he's talking to God by himself when he's all alone, which is already his bodidus, right? He's a, he's a Breslau Rechassid, you know? Like, so how can you say that this guy is not religious? Then it's even more of a question because not, he's not praying for, please, my ailing mother is very sick, please save her life. He's not praying for something giant. He's praying for a parking spot, which means that he, he believes that God is involved in the world and controls every little part of creation. Okay, so now all of a sudden we've got a very different opinion of this guy. This is a highly religious person. So how does this highly religious person all of a sudden go, oh no, forget it, God, I took care of it. Where did the Amuna turn off? Like it was like all the gates were open, and then a second later it's like, no, God, I run the world, not you. What happened? How is it, and so I'm talking to myself while I'm driving, which is not an infrequent occurrence, <laughs> and, 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 and I'm listening to this song, which is like clearly this gift from God, right, consoling me at this moment, and, um, and I'm asking myself, do, do you believe that God runs the world? And I'm like, absolutely. Do you believe that he controls every aspect of creation? Absolutely. Did, did God just put on this song right now? Absolutely. So then what's the problem? And then I realized what it was, is that, you see, we're constantly making God small. We believe in God, and we believe that He's involved, but we, it's very hard for us to fathom that God really is that big. See, Reb Shlomo would say it all the time. He would say, why are you making God so small? Why are you making God so small? I mean, we have to constantly, even to a quote-unquote religious personality, we have to constantly remind ourselves how absolutely infinite God is. And then when I started to, then when I said that to myself, and I, I was like, it's true, I'm making God too small. And so I just I tried to expand my mind, expand my mind, expand my mind. Ah, and then I had a moment then I was able to receive what, it, what, what, what the moment, what was transpiring there. So we have to know that in the blink of an eye, Hashem can bring the finishing of the world. Now, the reason why I'm bringing up these questions uh, the reason why I'm bringing up these questions that were asked in the next world, and there, there are more of them, um, is because there's, there's this passage. This is getting back to the Gomorrah now. And this is, a, uh, this is from the Psalms, uh, chapter 33, verse 6. Okay. Oh, no, I'm sorry. From Yeshaya, the prophet Isaiah, 33, 6. And, it, and it's the following. It's in the V'yitim Lecha. We read it after Shabbos. I'm going to read it in English. And it's a, this is a major verse. A major, major verse. The stability of your times, the strength of your salvations, shall be through knowledge and wisdom, fear of God. That is one's treasure. I'll read it one, one more time. The stability of your times, 
the strength of your salvations shall be through knowledge and wisdom, fear of God, that is one's treasure. So, the Gomorrah in Shabbos 31a breaks down that verse and shows you that contained within that verse is the six orders of the Mishnah. And that there are six questions that were asked at the end of our life based on this verse, based on the six orders of the Mishnah. In other words, now we're starting to put together what we've been talking about, okay? The questions were asked at the end of our life are modeled on the Torah Shabbat Peh, the different pillars of the Torah Shabbat Peh. In other words, we're partners with God in terms of finishing off the world. Another way of expressing that partnership is the Torah Shebek the written Torah, and the Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral law. We are the oral law. At the end of our life, there will be a reckoning were you the oral law? Let's go through the six pillars of the oral law, which you stand for, which you, human being, fill in, fill in your name here, right, stand for. Did Were you the oral law during your lifetime? That, and that, it's a very, this is a very, this is a very far out idea. The idea that we're activating part of the Torah, which is the energy of creation, we are the oral law. And you want to hear something also cool? Just another visualization. The letter Vav is six. So that's, that's six, okay? And a human being is a letter Vav. Okay? A letter Vav is a straight line. You, you are a Vav. You are the Torah Shabbat Peh. This is very interesting. Now... Listen to this, and maybe we'll even, I don't know if we'll finish with this idea, but maybe. you got to concentrate for this one, okay? This is, this is but it's, it's something that took me a while to get. I'm going to try to say it super clearly. But Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver brings it from the Vilna Gon, and he brings it a few times, so he, he's not repeating himself. He's telling you, if he's bringing it up several times, that this is a very, very central idea, okay? So just try to concentrate, okay? So now you have, look, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem. Okay, those are the first five words of the Shema, okay? That parallels the five books of the Torah. The first five words of the Shema parallel the first five books of the Torah, which is Torah Shebek That's the written Torah. Okay, we're going we're gonna to go into the oral Torah in a second. That's the written Torah. Now, what's the last word of Shema? Is Echad. Echad is Gematria 13. Okay? Now, there are 13. This is um, a crazy English word. Hermeneutical principles. <laughs> Which basically tell you how to connect the written word and the Talmud. In other words, God's job and our job. Okay? So again, the first five words, and what's Shema talking about? Shema's talking about how everything is one. How God fills the entire world and it's all contained within His great unity, His great oneness. So the first five words of Shema is followed by the word Echad, right? And then you've got the six words, Baruch Shem Kavod Lambed is six words, and what did we say six was? That's the oral law. So you've got the first five words of Shema, that's the five books of Moses, that's the written word, Baruch Shem Kavod Lambed, that's six words, that's the oral law, and then you've got the word echad telling you that it's all one, and that echad is the number 13, which is how you derive all of the oral law principles from the written law. 
And those six and six, of course, are also stand for heaven and earth. Right? If you want to... This is a different drasha. Now we're not explaining the word echad at the end of Shema. Now we're treating it as a separate unit, as six words and six words. Which are, by the way, remember, Yaakov Avinu puts 12 stones around him. And they all become one when he wakes up. Right? Right? And that's, that's heaven and earth. Shema Yisrael, Shema Lokeinu, Hashem Echad, that's heaven. Baruch Shem Kavod, Malchuso, right? The sphere of Malchus, that's earth. Malchuso Leilam Va'ed, heaven and earth. And we're putting heaven and earth together. How do we put heaven and earth together? When we become the living Torah. And how do we become the living Torah? It's back to that Ikea model, right? There's that list of instructions, and then we assemble ourselves with God's help. Okay. Now for some questions and answers. (laughs) So we summarize our Jewish numbers with thoughts. One, Echad, two, duality, Five books of Moses. Yeah. You know, like the song, Who Knows One. What is six? Well, six. we were just talking about Seven it, is yeah? the natural world. Eight is supernatural. So, what, what's the one word for six or the short? Torah Shabbat Peh. Oral Torah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what we've been saying. Okay. Right? Because six is above. That's the human being. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Human beings were created on the sixth day. Right? Mm. Yeah. And... You know, you know. I tell you, I tell you something, something deep, which is on the sixth day of creation, when human beings are created, all the other days of creation go like this: uh, Yom Echad, Yom uh, Sheni, Yom Shlishi, Yom Rvi, Yom Chamishi, Yom Hashishi. The sixth day of creation is the only day of creation that has the letter hey which means the preceding it and the rabbis explain why why this exception why does it say yom hashishi right and they say because they're talking about the sixth day not just the sixth day of creation the sixth day what's the sixth day the sixth day of sivan when the torah was given that the entire world is, 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 is resting on. The acceptance of the Torah by the Jewish people. And, 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 and so, it's also, but here you see this beautiful, this beautiful extra level. Because we just said what? Man is created, mankind is created on the sixth day. That's the Vav. And the He is the five books. So here you have this another, another another glimpse into the relationship between the oral law and the written law, right? Hey is five, that's the written law. Vav is the six orders of the Mishnah, that's the oral law in human beings. Yom Hashishi. In other words, the creation of human beings itself, you're already kicking into this Torah partnership between us and God. Um... So you mentioned that moment when you were in the car and uh, the song played and then yeah. there's a moment you need to uh, expand your mind. Yes. You know? Well, first of all, Shkoyach. Shkoyach on the talk, by the way. Oh, thanks. Uh, so in that moment when um, you just said you, you, know, you expand, expand your mind, what, what did you actually do if you can go back to yourself and really break it down a little more? Because that's, I think, a critical moment. Yeah. You know, I, like, I, you yeah. Know, I think it's the breath. I, absolutely. A hundred percent. It's a big one. So, so what I realized was Okay, the question is, why wasn't I, a, I, I knew intellectually that, that, that God was reaching out to me, right? Because why is this particular song, which, by the way, I love this song. You should download it, Nachamu, it's called, Rabbi Shlomo Katz. You'll love this song. Um, so, why wasn't, why wasn't I able to receive it? And I think the reason why I wasn't able to receive it is because I was making God too small. Like I couldn't, like in my constricted, upset state of mind, that's that you, I was in a place of narrow, constricted consciousness is what they call it. 
right? I couldn't imagine that God cared or was big enough or whatever it was. I mean, none of it was an intentional thought. But as soon as I just sort of opened up my mind to God's infinity, I was like, oh, yeah, sure. But how? How, yeah. how did you move? What was the stage from, from you realized it well, and then yeah. I'm like, okay, so what were the... You really right. do go back to the body. There's well, like lots of different. Yeah, I said things. to my. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's different for everyone, but for me, I just went through a logical process. I said, Do I believe in God? Yeah. Do I believe that God created the world? Yeah. Do I believe that God controls every aspect of creation? Yeah. Okay, do I. Then does that mean that this song is from God? Absolutely. Okay, so then that's. Each one of those steps was widening my mind, widening my mind, and then getting me back. But, but by the way, when, when you, the best way to get into a place of expanded consciousness is through simcha, is through joy. When you're in a place of joy, then, then these thoughts become very intuitive. You don't have to take a sledgehammer to your rock-hard heart, you know what I mean? Or your rock-hard head. Like, it just flows naturally. That's why, that's why Hasidus, and, you know, by the way, the Ari said, the Ari who is almost, you know, to the, we don't have prophecy after the destruction of the second temple, but to the extent that there was prophetic levels, he was reaching this, this approach to, the, to prophecy. He says about himself that all of the levels, all of the spiritual levels that came to me only came through simcha. Wow. Only came through joy. Because joy is this remarkable tool. That's why people very, I think, very superficially think that, oh, when people talk about being like the happy meaning, oh, happy, everyone's going to be happy, isn't that nice for you? You know what I mean? In this like, this ridiculous condescending way, they don't understand that, that Simcha itself is this, this mega bomb spiritual tool to be able to transform your consciousness. That's why happiness, that's one of the reasons why happiness is taken so seriously in, in Torah. Talking about the inanimate objects, and I thought of yeah. like a couple other examples. Yeah. Other examples. One is that um, they, uh, uh, when you uh, say Kiddush and you have to cover the bread. Yes, excellent example. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So just, just to explain, if, if, if you're not following, is that is that, you know, we light the candles, so that's, and then we, we make kiddush over the grape juice or the wine, and then we make uh, the blessing over the bread. So the bread comes last. And so one of the explanations of why you cover the bread is that the bread shouldn't be embarrassed that it's going last. And that's a, that's a classic Torah definition, a classic Torah explanation, by the way, for why we do that. So again, just the, you know, to me, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. I'll give you another. Ex- I'll give you another uh, example, which again, I love all these things. Is that um, you know, there's a Torah way to put on your socks and shoes. So, so you put on your right sock and then your left sh- sock, and then your right shoe and then your left shoe. So the right goes first, and then it changes by the tying. Then you tie your left shoe, then you tie your right shoe. So it's right sock, left sock, right shoe, left shoe, then you tie your left shoe, then you tie your right shoe. So, so one of the explanations, and they're deeper explanations, I don't know if they're deeper, but there are other explanations of this, is that, is that if you just put on your, say, your right sock and your right shoe, it would hurt the feelings of your, of your left foot. <laughs> now, I guess it kind of depends on what kind of ears you have. Like, when I hear that, I hear beauty. Okay. Um, I think one of the problems we all have with not immediately feeling this is coming from Hashem yeah. is that there's always this tension, which you spoke about also, between we have to do our part and also Hashem does everything. So. I think that when you feel the disappointment or whatever, and then the song comes, it's also like, could I have handled this better? What should I have done? You know, did I do my whole part? And so I don't think it's so easy always to feel that Hashem is taking care of everything and everything's fine because we also have to do our part, right? I mean, when somebody gives you something, you don't say thank you, Hashem. 
No, you do, but after they leave. Exactly. But <laughs> what I'm saying, I think that that is a problem in our how we live on this earth and how we're hardwired, that there's always that tension. Yeah, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. You can be too religious. <laughs> right. People, people, you, here's an example of being too religious. I don't have to do anything because I believe so much in God. This is not really the Torah model. The Torah model is, you know what? You know, and I, I, I like to put it in these words, which is that a person says, um, God, I know you run the world. I know that you run creation and I love you so much. And, and, and you hand God, you pass God the ball. And, and God says, oh, that's so beautiful that you acknowledge my presence in this world and everything like that. And then he passes the ball back to you. <laughs> and you, that's what it is. You keep on passing the ball back and forth. But it always ends with God giving you back the ball. <laughs> and sometimes the religious personality, and I'm not saying that this is on purpose or trying to be lazy or tricky, but, you know, thoughts, the heart is a very, very confusing place. Sometimes there is a feeling that by being religious, I can excuse myself from work. And that I don't have to do the hard work because I have this exalted thing called faith. It's not cool. It's not cool. It isn't. sure if it's a profound question or comment or anything, but I've been blessed to go through the Jewish education system. I went there my whole entire life up until college, and then after college I went through seminary, and I gained a wonderful education. But it troubles me that these concepts aren't in our kids' schools, that kids don't relate to Torah through Simcha. I think I had one experience in high school where the rub of the school used to sing with us before Shabbos, Shabbos, like we would sing the Nigan Shabbos Kodesh and go through the go through the school and singing that. And I think that's was one of the highest moments of Judaism for some of these kids. But I think it's why, why is it that we've lost that? Where is it in in if it's in the Talmud? Why I, I can't say that Christianity destroyed it because also within the Middle Eastern cultures th these concepts are lost. Maybe not as much, but. How do we infuse it back? I know you're doing, thankfully, a great job of doing that and helping people, but I, I think these are such important tenets to bring Mashiach as this consciousness that we're partners with Hashem, that what we do matters, and that each one of us are on a different level. How do, how do we bring that more about? Because I think the fact that people are scoffing the happy meaning means they don't fully understand what the concept of Simcha is and why Simcha is so essential to health and to our soul. So, so what do we, what can we do about it? Because it, it troubles me so much. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, you know, a lot of times, I'm just going to react to your question because it deserves a, a very, you know, studied answer because, you know, you're, 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 you're bringing up something very large, but I'll just kind of give you something from the hip. Um, One of the things that I really benefited from, and I recommend it to everyone, is Rabbi Beryl Wine has a, uh, a series of talks about world Jewish history. And the, he's got them on the level of like dozens. And then he's also got like his crash course, which I think he narrowed down to five. I, I didn't listen to that one. But I really, really recommend it because it kind of gives you this overview of what we've been through. And he's He's a very wonderful teacher, and he also tells very entertaining stories along the way and things like that. And he, he makes a certain point, um, which is that, for instance, you know, if you want to contrast Polish Jews, like before World War II, and German Jews, like a lot of the Jewish population was in Poland or in Germany, right? So, so they have very opposite kind of like, um, I mean, these are all generalizations and stereotypes and things like that. But the, 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 the Polish Jew is very kind of like messy and more spontaneous and everything like this. And the German Jew is like extremely ordered, right? Like, um, uh, so, so the, the joke is uh, that the Ashkenazi 
Jew, the German Jew, like when they when they added when they added in the Shmon Esrei once a year, Mashi Varuch or Marid Hageshem, those words, calls his wife to say, "I'm going to be home late today." <laughs> right? So that's like we're talking very exact. That's the that's the German Jewish consciousness, right? And then the Polish is more freewheeling. So Rabbi Wein said, "Where did that come from?" He said, "Because." Germans are that way, and Poles are that way. In other words, the, the non-Jewish societies are that way. And when Jews live in these host countries, we take on a lot of the personality traits, you know, normally so, I mean, understandably so, of our host countries. Like, American Jews have a lot of American thoughts in, in, their, in, in the way they, they think and approach things, right? So, so this is a, a normal process. Now, when you have, so given the fact that there is this relationship between the way the host country thinks and then the way the way the, the Jewish population thinks, the reason why I'm bringing that up is because in recent years there's been a, a new field called positive psychology, um, which is which is a, a an academically respected. Way in fact, the positive psychology is is the is the field of happiness. Now people are academically studying happiness, and by the way, it's the most popular class at Harvard and Yale now. Okay, I've seen two over the years, two separate t- articles in the New York Times saying the biggest class, right? Because America has gotten, so to speak, just relatively speaking, so rich that it's been this mass dawning on people, money doesn't make you happy. <laughs> like, how can I have this much creature comfort and be miserable, right? So people are like, this is an academic problem. We have to figure this out in the, on the university and scientific level. So they have studied happiness now. So in other words, people are taking in, in universities the subject of happiness very seriously right now. And so, what I'm wondering, and again, this was just a, a just a reaction to what you were saying, is that now that the host country is taking happiness seriously, I think maybe you'll see a trickle down back into perhaps the the Jewish institutions as well, since since there's they're always affecting, we're always being affected by that, you know. So hopefully we don't need for that very lengthy process to unwind, and programs can be put in. I know I've seen Rebbeim, the rabbis at, at, for instance, at one of the local high schools here, try very, very hard. And they have tried hard. And there is an increased awareness. But, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to force excitement on people. Like, like, they brought in this particular band, and one of the Rebbeim said to me, like, with a broken heart, he said to me, no one was dancing. And that is kind of heartbreaking. But... You know, the, the problem is, is that when you make Torah into an academic subject and you give people report cards, like if I had a Torah school, I would, it, I, we would be spending time at um, nature reserves, um, in art museums, in like, you know, laboratories, and, and I would be showing how, look at everything around you. Now let me show you the Torah that's in everything around you, as opposed to here's a book and there's a book, and you know that that's how I think ideally. And I'm saying they're doing it all wrong. You know, it's a very easy for me to say, like, oh yeah, okay, great. So where are your kids now? They're in the Grand Canyon. Like, you know, it's not so easy to make a school like this. Is what I'm trying to say. But I think that people have to look around them and understand that Torah is filling everything from the laboratory to the museums to, 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 just, to, to the movies, to everything, right? You know, one of the things that um, I, I, I learned this from uh, Rabbi Cordozo, and I, I always thought this was interesting. One of the great philosophers, you know, or, you know, in academic circles, highly regarded philosophers, was someone named Schopenhauer. Okay, now Schopenhauer apparently was like a miserable person. Okay, and hated Jews, hated Jews. And you ready for this? This this is one of my favorite things in the world. Do you know why he hated Jews so much? Because he blamed them for giving the world hope. (laughs) (laughs) 
he blamed optimism on the Jews. <laughs> like, how dare you infect us with hope? We're clearly living in a doomed civilization, and yet you have the chutzpah to make people hope. Right? So, Hollywood, if you look at early Hollywood, you'll see all the, just about all the presidents of the early Hollywood studios were Jews. And I don't think that there, it's a coincidence that you have something called the Hollywood ending. What's the Hollywood ending? When everything turns out well. Do you think that that's a coincidence that Jews who were behind the movie studios like created the Hollywood ending? Because there is an optimism built in our soul because we know that there is a happy ending to each one of our lives, whether we experience it in this world, we experience it in the next world. Hopefully we experience it in both worlds. But there's a happy ending to each one of our lives individually and collectively as a, as a world civilization. Right? Because eventually there's peace. Hopefully now. Right? Amen. Can I give a 